Good morning, church. Today, we get to start a new book, Book of Micah. Last week, we ended our time in the Gospel of Matthew for just a short period of time. We'll return to it in the, in the fall if you've been really into that series. Praise God, I have been too. I'm excited about Matthew, but we'll get back to it when Jesus and the disciples get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that'll be about mid-September. We're going to go through now, though, the Old Testament, Old Minor Prophet book of Micah. There's a lot of background and context to cover to even start that book. So, with that in mind, we're just going to go right to our scripture today. We're going to read all of Micah chapter 1. Okay, so don't feel bad if you need to sit back down while we're reading through it. But as you are able, please stand with me as we read from Micah chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, for roll yourselves in dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Morath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath, the houses of Axib, shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel." I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Please be seated while we pray. Father, we ask for a word from you this morning. Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us through your, your wonderful book, Micah. We thank you for giving this word to that faithful prophet thousands of years ago. We pray that it would speak to our hearts now, that it would call us to conform to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Micah's not very much like Matthew, right? As you can tell. We're wading into much different waters here. <clears throat> Micah is an Old Testament minor prophet. And as, as Ed said, minor not, minor not in the sense of unimportance, but in the sense of length. Okay, nevertheless, the minor prophets are often overlooked and undervalued, except maybe for Jonah, which we tend to teach to our children. But that's about it. Martin Luther famously said of the minor prophets, they have a strange way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make heads or tails of them or see what they're getting at. And when we approach a book like Micah, that kind of response can often be our first impression too. It seems all over the place. He's talking about obscure people and obscure places. And the most common response is, this seems disconnected from me. What, what does this have to do with me? But here's the thing. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do we believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 also applies to the minor prophets? Even Micah? Okay. Then that's what we should expect, right? We should expect God to speak to our hearts through the Spirit in the book of Micah. We should expect to be taught, exhorted, corrected, and trained. Amen? Okay. Old Testament prophecy just feels a little different. It's a different genre. It's not like narrative, like Matthew, where we would expect some cohesive story. And it's not like the Psalms or the Proverbs, even though prophecy is often poetic. Prophecy is God's word spoken by a particular person to a particular people at a particular time and place. We went over all of that a few weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus brought up the potential reality of false prophets in the early church. A prophet speaks God's words after him. It doesn't always have to do with the future, but in the Old Testament it often does because the topic of the prophecy is that of warning against potential judgment in the future. Micah is an early prophet in the divided kingdom era of Israel. I should say, Micah is an early written prophet in the divided kingdom era of Israel. When he spoke and who he spoke to matters a lot. And if we're going to understand him, we have to know those things. Let's take some time to get historically situated in the book of Micah. The nation of Israel settled in the promised land about 1400 B.C., Around 400 years later, the nation had its first king, King Saul. And between those two times were the judges. Saul wasn't a very good king, so God handed the throne over to the second king, King David. David had a son named Solomon, who was pretty smart, but not smart enough to keep the kingdom together. His heirs split up the kingdom after his death into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, also known as Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's around the 900 B.C. mark. Tracking with me? The northern kingdom had 19 kings 
and lasted a couple hundred years, but that's it, because none of their kings were good. They all led their people into idolatry. The southern kingdom had 20 kings, and they were around about 150 years longer than the northern kingdom because some of their kings followed the Lord. The southern kingdom was better than the northern kingdom, by and large. So that's the 3,000-foot view of the divided kingdom era. For us, it's really important to know that it's split in the north and the south. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And it's also important to know Micah is a prophet in the southern kingdom. He's a prophet to Judah, specifically the city of Jerusalem. And he lives through the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, which happens around 722 B.C. So look again at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. That's all we get about the biography of Micah. We don't know anything else about him. Other than that, he was influential. The book of Jeremiah tells us that. He's from a town called Moresheth, which is a small town not far from the southwestern coast of Israel, but it's rural. He's a farm boy, country boy going to the big city of Jerusalem. He prophesied during the reign of three Judean kings, Jotham, who was a pretty good king that followed the Lord, Ahaz, a very bad king, and Hezekiah, a good king. Most of Micah's prophecies most likely took place during the reigns of Ahaz and Hezekiah. Ahaz was a bad dude. Bad dude. Second Chronicles 28 says this about him. Okay, now this is most of the prophecies, again, that Micah gives are against Ahaz and his kingdom and against early, the early Hezekiah years. Okay, so this is what Second Chronicles 28 tells us about Ahaz. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's not a compliment. That's really bad. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Not good. Not a good guy. He was an apostate king. He did not worship the God of Israel. He worshiped false gods and burned his children to one specific God in one specific valley. Horrible stuff. The God is also known as Molech. Something to remember when we read about these kings. Where the kings went, the people followed. Where the kings went, the people followed. If the kings worshipped false gods, so did the people. Needless to say, the southern kingdom of Judah needed a revival after Ahaz. They needed reformation and restoration. And Micah was the exact guy for the job. He's a cotemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the throne room. He has access to the kings. Okay, that's really cool. Isaiah is a wonderful book that you should read through. Micah, think of as the street prophet outside the palace. Micah refused to go along with the crowd. We'll find out that there were were priests and false prophets and leaders willing to tell the king whatever he wanted. Micah was not one of those guys. 
The nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, was supposed to be the more spiritual of the two, but it had become a place of paganism. And even the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, in his temple had become corrupted. On top of that, justice had been set aside. The rich abused the poor, and they thought God was blessing them because of it. The priests and the leaders kowtowed to the rich and the powerful, and they did so on the backs of normal people. So a lot of the book of Micah is preaching against that abuse. And that's why Micah says in chapter 3 about the leaders of Judah, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones? That's the situation in Judah and in all of Israel. Evil is prevailing and the form that it's taking in the day-to-day is that of injustice, abuse, oppression, and idolatry. Micah speaks out against the leaders and the rulers of Israel who do not hold up to their end of the covenant relationship that God had formed with the nation. The nation of Israel had a special relationship with God. They had a covenant And if they followed that covenant, the laws, they would be blessed. And if they didn't, they would be cursed. And Micah is bringing a message of judgment because they have abandoned the covenant they made with God. These leaders did not worship him as they should. And they did not reflect God's love and mercy and justice to the poor and to the peasant. And because of their idolatry and abuse, God pronounces judgment. So this book this book, will be spiritually challenging. And we should expect that going in. That's its actual intention, to be challenging, to bring reform. God gave these messages to Micah so that the nation would make an about face. So let's take a look at chapter one. What's on display here? First, God's powerful judgment. God's powerful judgment. Hear you peoples, all of you, Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. First of all, notice who Micah is talking to. Who is the book addressed to? All the peoples of the earth. He doesn't just first address Israel. He wants to get everyone's attention because no one is innocent. And because, and this is, this is really important, God is the God of the whole earth, not just the land of Israel. That's a really important point Micah wants us to realize early on. Micah presents God as judge and witness over all peoples and all nations. And this judge notice, does not stay seated in his heavenly temple. He is not a king that never leaves his palace. This is the very first thing we need to learn about God from the book of Micah. God dwells in heaven where he needs nothing and needs nobody. Yet, he is a God who enters into history for his people. And of course, the greatest example of that entering in is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This characteristic of God that he's willing to enter in and join us, continues on until he comes again. God dwells with us, Emmanuel. 
But this entering in right here is not quite like that. Here again, the language Micah uses to describe God's descent into the earth in judgment. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. In his fiery wrath, God descends to the earth and melts the mountains that he lands upon. He splits open the valleys like they're nothing to him. The mountains and the valleys here represent all of creation, the high and the low. There's nothing in comparison to this God who melts those things like wax with his wrath and with his judgment. This is the God of all nations, the God of all creation. And the imagery is startling and surprising for us because we don't typically think of God in this way melting creation with his wrath. But for the city of Jerusalem to hear this, they'd be applauding so far. They'd be excited. The imagery of God descending upon a mountain in fire would first remind them of Sinai, where God cut his covenant with his people in the book of Exodus. But similar language is used of God all over the place in the Old Testament when he fights for Israel against their enemies, like in Judges chapter 5. So the people might have understood all of this imagery of God's descent as a good thing so far. God is coming to fight for us. But that's not what Micah says. Look at verse 5. All of this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Let's talk about these names. Jacob is the original name of the patriarch who God later renames as Israel. So that name stands for the northern kingdom. Remember, they they called themselves Israel. But when Micah mentions Israel in this line, in verse 5, he has in mind the whole nation. He gives Jacob for the north and Israel for the whole So that first line here, all this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel is a reference to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. All of Israel is under judgment and under indictment. All of Israel must answer for their sins. Micah says that the transgression of Jacob is Samaria. Samaria was a city in the northern kingdom that functioned as its capital. That's where the king was. So when Samaria is mentioned, we should understand that God is not judging a city or buildings or roads, but the capital of a nation that has abandoned God for idols. He's judging the government. For Micah, the city of Samaria represents its kings and rulers and leaders of the northern kingdom. And because Samaria is mentioned first, we should expect judgment pronounced against her first. But Micah also mentions the southern kingdom. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Judah, you'll remember, is what they called the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Judah was one tribe of Israel. But David was from the tribe of Judah, 
So the place where the Davidic throne remained became known as Judah for his sake. And what was the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. Right, so Micah specifically says, and what is the high place of Judah? And the high place, wherever you see that in the Old Testament, is a reference to a place of worship, which means Judah is being dealt with because of their deficiency in how they worship, their treatment of the temple. So both Samaria and Jerusalem have been named as sources of transgression. Both of them are capital cities, which means... That Micah pronounces judgment against the governments of the north and the south for directing their nations away from God. The reason God leaves his throne in heaven and comes in wrath is because of the leaders and governments of the nation that was supposed to represent him before the world. Instead, these nations have led the people into idolatry and injustice and they look indistinct from the rest of the world. And the punishment will be severe. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Notice that Jerusalem is not named yet. That will come later. Samaria will be a heap in the open country. Samaria will no longer be an urban city, but a place to plant vineyards. Like the mountains that pour down like water in verse 4, the same language is used of the stones of Samaria, which will be poured down. And the only thing left will be her foundations. So in 722, Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and deported her people throughout the empire of Assyria. Here in verses 6 and 7, the city and its architecture represents the people of the north. Because of their idolatry and their abandonment of the covenant, they're made a heap in the open country. Verse 7 addresses the issue of idolatry directly. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. God hates it when we substitute the profane for the sacred. He hates it when we attribute to earthly things that which is reserved only for him. He hates it when we serve created things as if they're gods or as if they're as good as him. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we're told about Jeroboam's sin. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom. He was a servant in Solomon's house, but seized power for himself because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, made some really stupid decisions. And Jeroboam effectively gained control of 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. But he didn't have control of a very important place. He didn't have control of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is what he lacked. He didn't have control of the temple of the Lord. That was a big blow to him. Because it's a problem if you want people to stay in your kingdom. He set up, in order to bring people to to stay in the north, he set up two other places of worship in the northern kingdom. Two false altars with golden calves even. One in the far north in his country, 
in the city of Dan and one in the southern part of his country in Bethel so that his people wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship their God because that is the only place God wants to be worshipped. God wants to be worshipped a certain way. And he told his people that he would only be worshipped in the tabernacle and later the temple which Solomon built in Jerusalem. So this is a problem. Right away, the northern kingdom was led into idolatry. At first, they thought they were worshipping the God of Israel in Dan and Bethel. Even with the golden calves, they, they believed that that was a good representation of their God. But they weren't. God cannot be represented in physical form. They were worshiping a false image of God, which should be a reminder to us, right? God is not who we think he is in our minds. God is what he tells us he is in his word. Let me say that again. God is not who we create him to be in our heads. He is who he tells us he is in his word. Amen? If we begin to think that God is only what we want him to be, then we've made an idol. If we think we can worship him however we'd like, we're making an idol. And we are really good at that. We're really good at making idols. So the people of the north fell into idolatry immediately as they falsely worshipped the God they thought they wanted to worship properly. They were doing it wrong, which means very quickly they started worshiping false gods. Idolatry always leads to more idolatry. I'd encourage you to read 1 and 2 Kings for more details here. Those books are fascinating, especially if you're a history buff, men in here. If you really love history, 1 and 2 Kings are for you. Those countries, they started to worship local pagan deities like the Baals and the Ashtaroth, who were both fertility gods. Okay, and they even brought Yahweh, the one true covenant God, into that type of pantheon, into that worship. And they insulted him by treating him like a fertility god. It was all very dark, all very twisted stuff. But when we read something like verse 7... It talks about prostitution. We have to understand, we have to put our minds back 2,700 years. Cult prostitution was part of the worship of these false gods. And it, it's almost always a part of the worship of false gods wherever you go in paganism. Because paganism is all about this question. Okay? It's all about this question. What can I make God do for me? Paganism is all about the question, what can I make God do for me? For instance, Baal, there were a bunch of Baals, but Baal was typically understood as a storm or rain god. And if you're a farmer, which most of the people in Israel were, rain is a really important thing, right? So if you needed some rain, you went and paid a prostitute of Baal and slept with him or her, and bingo, You've, you've got yourself some rain because he owes you now. And it doesn't hurt that paganism always plays to our senses. The fee of the prostitute paid for greater, more beautiful idols. 
But the promise of Micah here is that they would be torn down, burned, and stripped of their gold, and that that gold would be used again by those soldiers to continue the cycle of prostitution and idolatry. The fee of a prostitute. Samaria would be destroyed. Her idols would be beaten to pieces and burned with fire. And we might expect that the people of Jerusalem would be happy to hear this news. The northern kingdom wasn't exactly their favorite place. And we might even feel like that's a good and just outcome. And certainly Samaria deserved it. But Micah demonstrated the right response to this news when he made second a call to repentance and lament. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah makes and takes the position of a mourner. He demonstrates for the people the right response to God's judgment. In our world, mourning is marked by quiet isolation, closing the blinds, solemn tears, few guests. But in ancient Israel, it was almost the exact opposite. It was very public. The appropriate and right response in mourning was big outward displays of grief, wearing certain clothes, getting dirty, weeping, crying loudly, welcoming other people to do the same with you. That was what was appropriate. And here, Micah, his mourning goes to the nth degree. He strips off his outer cloak. He takes his sandals off. He laments and wails, screeching like an angry ostrich. That's why that's there. Because he understands that Samaria's wound is incurable. When he gives this prophecy, the nation only has a few years left. Their countrymen, his countrymen, the people of the covenant will be deported. And many people will suffer and die in the invasion. But it gets worse. Samaria is not very far from Jerusalem. Verse 9. It has reached to the gate of his people. Could the southern kingdom really expect to not be affected by the invasion of the Assyrians in the north? Of course not. It will reach the gate. Micah's response is not typically our response to societal sin. When we see our political adversaries fall, we tend to gloat. When we see the failure of our perceived enemies, we, we think they deserved it. Now, to be fair, we are not the nation of Israel, so let's make that clear. This passage is, about the fail, is, is not about the failings of America. But Micah's response is the right response to sin. We should be like Micah when we think of the injustice and idolatry of our nation. We should weep over the fact that many of our people are impoverished and lack basic needs, many of whom are brothers and sisters in Christ. We should mourn the injustice that we see not only in our nation and community, but in the world. The prisons that are filled to bursting, the companies that profit from suffering, 
the endless wars that our young go and fight, the death of the unborn. And we should mourn the idolatry that fills our nation, the rampant sexual immorality and the confusion surrounding sex and gender, the empty pursuit of wealth and a culture of winners versus losers, the self-medication of the masses who can't stand their empty lives, the worship of political figures and utopian ideals. Do we think that we have nothing to lament for? Do we think that we have nothing to repent of? Like Micah in Jerusalem, the church is the salt and light of the world. Amen? Are we doing a good enough job with that? on an individual level? Do we desire to see the the real people around us in our city and in our community come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we care enough about them to share the good news? To alleviate their suffering? Micah cares about these people in Jerusalem. And in verses 10 through 15... He lists different names of towns that are in the southern kingdom to to lament and repentance. He calls them to do this. So should we. When we look at the sins of people on display, even for a whole month, our, our response shouldn't be disgust. It should be lament. It should be mourning and a desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, it's not clear in the English, but in the Hebrew, verses 10 through 15 are all carefully crafted puns. Now, I like to say that puns are the lowest form of humor, usually to make Ashley mad, (laughs) because she's really good at them and I'm not. But puns and plays on words are usually just a form of humor for us. But for ancient Israel, play on words were really significant. They had this magical quality to them, mystical uh, nature. Rhymes meant things to normal people. And Micah plays on that superstition in 10 through 15. He, He mentions 11 small towns. These are little rural towns in Judah from the area that he came from. He says, tell it not in Gath. Gath sounds like the Hebrew word for tell. Gath is in the north of Judah, right on the border of Israel. It won't have time to mourn through the invasion, only, only time to run. Bethlehaphra translates to house of dust. The people of this town should mourn by ruling themselves in it. Shafir sounds like the Hebrew word for beautiful, but its inhabitants will pass on in nakedness and shame. Za'anan sounds like come out, as in come out and fight. But they won't come out. They can't. Not to protect, not for anything else. And neither will Beth Ezel, which sounds like take away. The protection that they provided to those southern cities will be taken away. Maroth sounds like bitter. And their anxious waiting won't pay off for God's goodness. The bitter judgment from the Lord will be swift. 
Lakish sounds like the Hebrew phrase for to the horses, which again has battle connotations. But the people will only use those horses and chariots to run away. Lakish is also denounced as the original place where idolatry started to seep into Judah, which is really interesting. A major function of Judah's idolatry, and we'll need to know this going forward, was their trust in their military might. They trusted in that security over the security God could provide. Moresheth Gath, Micah's hometown, doesn't get a pass from him. Moresheth sounds like betrothal. And was once, what, what was once a wedding gift to Judah will be handed as a dowry to the invading nation. Aksib sounds like deception. And it was a place where fancy pottery was made for kings, the kings of Judah. But the contracts they made with those kings will not be fulfilled when all of their stores are destroyed. In that way, they will deceive. Marashah ironically sounds like the Hebrew word for conqueror. But the city that bears that name will itself be conquered. Adalim doesn't receive a pun based off its name. Rather, the irony is in the fact that David, the old glory of Israel, fled to Adalim in his time. But the next glory of Israel to visit Adalim will be God himself in his wrath. Which reminds us that behind all of this judgment is God. He is the one who judges his people. And verse 16 is a call to the people to mourn with Micah. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Shaving a small portion of your hair was a sign of great mourning in Israel. When a, when a beloved person close to you died, you shaved off a piece of your hair right at the front. And here Micah calls for the nation to shave it all off, not just a little portion, like a bald eagle whose feathers on its head are all white. The people should shave off all their hair in mourning because their children, the children of their delight, will go into exile. It won't be until 586 BC that the southern kingdom of Judah will endure the deportation of Babylon. It's a long time. 150 years or so before Micah delivers this. So he gives that prophecy well in advance. In the end, it's not Assyria who comes and conquers Judah, they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. That's because there's something else that we, we have to know about the book of Micah. Micah's call to repentance worked. This worked. Because of Micah's powerful preaching and his direct call for lamentation and repentance, Hezekiah brought sweeping religious reforms to Judah and Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. These prophecies served as a call to repentance for Israel and they listened. There is a possibility of repentance. It is never too late. Praise the Lord. And he, God does the same for us. Sin leads to death. 
and a death that separates us from God eternally. That's bad news. And it's only when we are confronted with our sin and with the reality of that separation that we'll understand a need for a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior who delivers us from the bondage of sin and from the grasp of hell. And by placing your faith in him and by turning away from your sin like the nation of Israel did, you too can be saved from disaster. The God of all people, the God of power and might, the God who judges, is also the God of grace. He sees our sin for what it is, he sees it very clearly. Another theme of Micah is that God sees and he is active when he sees. He sees your sin, even the sins you hide. But in the death of Christ, your sins are dealt with. Hallelujah. His wrath is real, but his mercy is greater. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today that reminds us that it is never too late to turn to you in faith. Lord, even when we hear hard things like Micah 1 that remind us of the idolatry and injustice in our world, we remember that you are more powerful than those things. And we, we worship you and we thank you for that truth. Lord, we depend upon you. We need you. Because in our own strength, we would fall into idolatry time and time again. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And for the fact that you do call us to repentance over and over. We pray today that you would not remember our sins. That you would forgive us. That you'd give us a greater measure of your grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.